Chapter 9 of The Mystery of the Woods by W. H. H. Murray. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 9 Yes, the Yankee was in trouble, and a trouble of a sort that might daunt any spirit less daring, or rather, let me say, less careless than his. For through every exhibition of this man's courage there ran a broad line of sheer recklessness such as boys of the pluck often show in emergencies whose actual peril they are too ignorant to appreciate. Yes, Jim Bean was in trouble. To employ an expression he used the next day in describing his sensation, he was in such peril that he wouldn't give a last year's bean pod for his chance of getting out. And yet, serious and imminent as a crisis was, his manner of meeting it was of so brave and peculiar a character as to excite admiration on the one hand and provoke laughter on the other. It seems that on leaving the trapper he had for a time followed his advice and acted with great caution and not a little skill. For he had kept to the noiseless sand of the beach, advanced slowly, and made frequent pauses for observation. He had even made the last hundred feet of his approach by slow and skillful crawling and had got to the very edge of the firelight undiscovered. Had he remained at this point and contented himself with watching the occupants of the camp, as the trapper had charged him, all would have been well. But after lying some fifteen minutes, which seemed an age to him, without moving an inch, he concluded in his mind to get a little nigher, and see, as he inwardly expressed it, what the mere chaps be about, anyhow. For this unwise and perilous decision there was literally no justification whatever. As his then-present position commanded a full view of the entire camp, at least of all he was expected to watch, and therefore could not be bettered. But if this reflection entered his mind, it had no influence upon it, for he proceeded to move along the beach until he was actually in front of the gambler, and not thirty feet from him. Not content with this proximity, he slowly moved himself around until the hollow bark within which he lay was end on to the campfire, so that the light shone full into it, revealing a sandy face and gleaming eyes. And then, as if even this foolhardiness were not enough, he began to crawl directly up toward the campfire. It must be confessed that he acted with the finest skill and obeyed the trapper's injunction as to the slowness of his motions with absolute faithfulness. For he did, in very truth, move but an inch a minute, and so noiselessly that not a sound followed his motion. Indeed, so perfectly did he execute his perilous endeavor that he had actually crept to the rear of the gambler, and within a dozen feet of him, before the catastrophe that followed occurred. And even then his discovery was more the result of sheer accident than because of any blunder made by him. And it happened in this way. The Yankee had, as we have said, moved inch by inch, up even with the position of the gambler, and was now lying within his bark encasement directly back of him, and not a dozen feet away, when the man of luck suddenly arose from the log on which he had been sitting, and turned squarely around, standing back to the fire. Even then it seemed probable that the Yankee would remain undiscovered, for the hollow bark in which he lay, although clearly revealed to the gambler by the firelight, made no revelation of the secret within, for to him it was only a log, and what was there strange or startling in the fact of a spruce log lying at his feet? It was evident that the gambler was entirely undisturbed, for after having turned his back upon the fire, 
He stood gazing for a moment listlessly out into the gloom beyond the illuminated circle, and, as if communing with his own thoughts, began to whistle in a low, quiet tone. To one who was accidentally listening, the gambler's performance would have been most entertaining, for he whistled with great accuracy of time and liquidness of tone, and the silent air of the evening received the notes as only the still air can, as if delighted to be ministered to by so sweet a sound. It was evident that the man who had trusted in luck was naturally gifted in the direction in which he was now exercising himself, and, as is generally the case, enjoyed the exercise of his gifts. For he whistled with that self-complacency and increasing volume of sound which characterizes a performer who begins his performance from an accidental impulse, but delighted, continues to do it for his own hearty entertainment. He whistled at first fragmentarily, a bar of this tune, and then a bar of another, and now the lively movement of a waltz, and now the statelier strain of an old solemn hymn. At last, as if he had been feeling round for something adequate, he had suddenly come upon it. He paused a moment, and then struck off with decided movement, still keeping the minor tone, the cheerful measure of the old Methodist hymn. O Canaan, bright Canaan, I'm bound for the land of Canaan. If you get there before I do, I am bound for the land of Canaan. Before he had come to the end of the first stanza, the earnestness of his expression had decidedly increased, and when he struck off on the second stanza, he did it with an emphasis of expression and an unction that would have delighted the company of earnest souls from whom was mercifully concealed the irreverence of the performer's life for the notes came out smooth, round, and strong, and with a certain swing in the upward slide that imparted something of their own cheerful exultation to whoever might be listening. What is that strange law within us which prompts us to imitate and join in a sound which moves us profoundly? We have all felt the influence. We have all yielded to it. It is said that one singer can make a whole congregation sing. Such is the magnetism of example such the responsiveness of sympathy. Now, Jim Bean was a whistler himself. He was a Methodist. He had been educated in that positive and earnest school of music which Methodism favors. He was by no means a man devoid of emotional development. Like all New England-born men, memory held powerful sway over his feelings. However far or wide the Yankee roams, there is one spot and one face he never forgets. The spot and the face I need not mention, the reader can guess. Jim Bean was a Yankee. He was away from home. He was a whistler. He was a Methodist. And being all this, what would be natural for him to do under the circumstances? If you are a whistler, reader, stop a moment and whistle a strain or two of the tune yourself. Do it heartily. If you are a Methodist and you have a whistler in your family, Get him to whistle with brave and earnest expression a stanza. Let him whistle with increasing power. Let him swell the volume of his tone as he advances from word to word. Have him prolong the closing note of the lines with a strong upward movement. If you will do this, you will understand the startling occurrence to whose description I am conducting you. What happened? This. The gamblers, we have said, had whistled in a minor tone the first stanza. He had warmed to the work as he whistled, 
in his earnestness, in the absent-mindedness which accompanies strong feeling and leads one to incongruous action, not only had he whistled, but he had begun to beat the measure with his foot, and had actually taken a pack of cards from his pocket and was shuffling them in perfect time with a swinging measure of the cheerful strain. And when he struck into the first line of the second stanza, after having ended the refrain of the previous verse, with a triumphant flourish of sound, he was going it with an unction and positiveness of expression that made it unresistible to one whose nature and training exposed him to the pressure of such a temptation. It is not certain that poor Bean intended to whistle. It is doubtful that he himself knew when he began to whistle. But begin he did, mentally at first, doubtless. But the movement of the brain descended to the mouth and communicated its vibrations to the tongue and ran its tuneful contractions around the lips. But no matter how the terrible result was reached, it was reached. For before the gambler had gone halfway through the second line of the second stanza, Jim Bean joined in the tune, somewhat timidly at first, but with growing earnestness as he proceeded. And by the time the gambler had come to the refrain, the Yankee was going it at the full strength of his whistling capacity, and the lines, Oh, praise the Lord, I'm coming to, I'm bound for the land of Canaan were delivered with a volume of sound that astonished even the gambler. Still, the Yankee had whistled in such perfect time and with such concerted action that beyond the overwhelming increase of sound there was not the least intimation conveyed to the gambler's mind that he had been accompanied. It is true that he had paused a moment at the end of the refrain. Perhaps he looked at the log. Perhaps he listened. He certainly stopped shuffling the pack. His face wore a puzzled expression. For an instant, he even looked around as if to note if anyone was watching him. Then he said, Chaw! and struck off with a rush into the repetition of the second stanza, as if he would repeat the enjoyment he had received, while foot and cards renewed their measured motion. Nor was our friend being behind time. The refrain had fairly warmed him to his work, and the first note that poured from the gambler's lips found him ready and waiting. It is doubtful if the gambler was ever assisted with greater hardiness for the Yankee had let out with his full strength. Indeed, he overdid the thing. Perhaps his tones were by nature stronger than the gambler's. Perhaps the curvature of the hollow bark in which he lay added to the volume of the resonance. Be that as it may, by the time he had come to the refrain, the gambler was fully aware that he had a partner in the game he was playing, and that the partner was far from being a dummy. The gambler was not only aware of it, but the knowledge was of so startling a character that even his supreme coolness was for once disturbed, and his system received something nigh at least to a shock. He came to a full stop, but the Yankee was too far advanced in feeling and too wrapped in the energy of his own performance to even know that his leader had paused. It was doubtful whether if he had, it would have put any check to his tuneful career. For onward he swept into the refrain at a pace which carried everything before it, the hollow encasement resounded with noise, the fibers of the bark fairly quivered with a penetrating melody, the notes poured out of either extremity in a torrent. The performance was, indeed, of a most astonishing character. The gambler was thoroughly bewildered. He looked at the log from whose bulk the tune was being poured with astonishment. He never suspected the trick, and yet he knew that something was wrong. Was it in himself? No. He knew that he was wide awake. He was a determined man, quick to decide, quick to act, fearless. He took half a dozen steps forward. They brought him within reach of the bark. He drew back his foot. Devil take the log, 
he said, and kicked it. The toe of his boot penetrated the bark and struck square against Jim Bean's ribs. The yell which the poor fellow poured forth upon the air was fierce and prolonged enough to startle even the bravest. The outlaws asleep by the fire sprang bewildered and frightened to their feet. The gambler recoiled a step, surprised at the terrible revelation his kick had caused. The bark lifted one end of itself, stood up erect, moved toward him, began to open. Then a voice said, "'Hit a man in the ribs, will you, for whistling a tune? Darn you, take that!' And a fish shot out of the opening directly at the gambler's face, while the bark, thrown backward by the motion, fell with a crash to the ground, and the Yankee, wrathful and ready for fight, stood revealed in the firelight." It was of the nature of the highest proof of the gambler's coolness in emergencies that he escaped the terrible blow that the Yankee had aimed at him, but he did escape it, warding it with a motion so quick and skillful that it afforded full evidence both of his self-possession and his knowledge of the manly art. The instant that the bark fell away from around the Yankee's body, thus leaving him fully exposed to the eyes of the outlaws, they recognized him as the man who had come to the trapper's assistance the night before and by whose efforts they had been thwarted in their murderous designs, and with a yell of fierce delight rushed in a body upon him. But the bean blood was up, and the reckless courage of the down-easter aroused. The first one that came within reach he met with a kick in the stomach that doubled him up with sudden pain. But unfortunately for him he had put such force into the kick and delivered it at such long a range that it upset his own equilibrium and when his other two assailants came against him, he was unable to recover his balance in time to save himself, and was only able, as he rolled upon the ground, to drag them both with him. It was not until he was thus engaged in a rough and tumble contest, and was rolling over and over on the ground in desperate grapple with his antagonists, that the injunction of the trapper to run if he could and not fight occurred to him. It was then, too, that he remembered the signal agreed upon, the hoot of an owl, as a note of danger, and the bark of a fox to give direction of his flight, if he had to run for it. But faithful to his promise, no sooner did he recall the agreement with the trapper than he strove to fulfill it. It is certain that no owl ever sounded such a cry upon the night air as the Yankee, in attempted imitations of a lonely call, poured out of his mouth as he grappled with the outlaws. In vain did the gamblers strive to help his companions. The contestants were in too rapid motion and too inextricably mingled to be separated or even distinguished in the darkness, for as they fought they had rolled away from the firelight toward the water and were already almost indistinguishable in the gloom. In a moment the Yankee, by lucky motion, recovered his feet and, unmindful of the trapper's direction, darted away, while he poured out of his mouth a series of barks and owl cries which proved both his entire incapacity to imitate the sounds and his determination to make up an extra energy of expression for the time he had lost in executing the signals. But unfortunately for him, in his confusion, he had mistaken the direction of the boat, and instead of taking the course he should have done, he ran directly through the camp and actually into the arms of the giant. The old trapper had not been idle. Brief as the struggle on the beach had been, he too had been called upon to act, when the cry of his companion had first sounded and the terrible uproar arose around the campfire, he was lying, as we have described, by the big tent in the act of putting his eye to the rent he had cut in the canvas. Of course, the yell of the Yankee had put a stop to his investigations. He had even moved several feet away from the tent and, lying on the ground in the darkness, was listening for the movements of the man whom he had crept past and who he knew was somewhere in the darkness back of him. Nor did he have long to wait, in an instant the rush of feet was heard, 
and the old man knew he was coming. The giant had risen and even advanced several rods towards the center of the camp whence the noise of the conflict came. The old trapper was thus in the rear of all the occupants of the camp except the sentinel, whose swift approach he could plainly hear. As he passed the old man in the darkness, an arm was suddenly thrust out, and he was pitched headlong to the ground, and before he could even cry out, a hand had him by the neck and a grasp was fastened on his throat that effectually prevented his giving an alarm, and thus the man lay on the ground, and the trapper by his side with his hand on his throat. If the trapper had only known it was a half-breed, he thus held in his grasp. The Yankee, as we have said, confused and mistaking the right direction, had run into the very arms of the giant. The velocity with which he was running when the collision with his enemy occurred was sufficient to make the shock a terrible one to both. Indeed, it nearly knocked the breath out of their bodies. Both recovered themselves in the same instant, and both, thoroughly enraged, sprang upon each other with the ferocity of wild animals. Yankee was nearly as tall as a giant, and what he lacked in strength was at least partially made up by his greater agility. For a minute the contestants tore about this way and that through the darkness, like a whirlwind. Twice they fell to the ground, and twice they arose, only to renew their deadly embrace. As they fought, other forms appeared in the gloom, and the trapper, who was still lying on the ground with his hand on the throat of the half-breed, felt that the crisis had come, and that now, if ever, he must aid his companion. In an instant, the moment for him to act came. The giant had, by the exercise of his terrible strength, fairly tossed the Yankee into the air, and when he struck the ground, he landed in the very midst of the outlaws and the gambler, who were standing as spectators of the terrible encounter. Yankee, feeling that all were his enemies and careless as to whom he fought with, his down-east grit fairly aroused, no sooner struck the ground than he laid hold of as many as he could sweep within his embrace, and pouring a torrent of owl hoots, cat calls, and fox barks out of his mouth, started with an outlaw under each arm, in full tilt for the beach. Him the others followed, the giant slowest to move last. This was the trapper's opportunity. With a farewell pinch at the throat his fingers encircled, he arose to his feet, and before the giant had taken two strides, a hand fell heavily on his shoulder, and a power equal to his own spun him around on his feet, and a voice said, The boy has enough, Arterum. Try me. The contest which followed cannot be described. It was the struggle of two men, both of enormous strength, and neither of whom had ever been thrown. The contestants were in deadly earnest from the start. There were no feints, no tricks of fence, no scientific delays. They grappled each other with that directness of attack warranted by their knowledge of their strength and inspired by unquestioning courage. The trapper was the more agile of the two, and prudence would have suggested that he prolong the contest and add to his chances by wrestling at arm's length. But either from fear that his opponent might receive reinforcement if he delayed or because he disdained to avail himself of the last natural advantage, he met the giant breast to breast in the deadly lock known as the backhold their knuckles in each other's spine, and their bodies braced. It was a square test, muscle against muscle, bone against bone, grit against grit. For thirty seconds neither yielded, not a quiver in either frame, no slacking of the terrible tension. Then the end came. A spasm ran through the body of the trapper's monstrous antagonist. His clasped hands loosened, unlocked, and fell to his side. His form lost its stiffness yielded to the old man's hug, doubled backward, and, as the trapper let go his hold, 
the huge body of his foe fell in a limp heap to the ground. At the same instant, a yell of triumph sounded from the beach, and the trapper knew that the Yankee was a captive. The vagabonds have got the boy, he muttered. For a moment he stood listening. He even drew his knife, but wiser counsel prevailed. He drove it back into its sheath, saying, I'll settle with the varmints when the sun shows me the sights. And then he turned on his heel and plunged into the woods. End of chapter 9